You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles this morning, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, is where we will be today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're using a black hardcover Bible under those chairs, you're of course welcome to use those. Uh, This morning, page 955 uh, is where uh, you'll find today's text. Uh, And this morning's sermon, uh, like like last week's and also like next week's, uh, should be considered PG-13, putting a a PG-13 rating on these. Um, Hopefully this was your experience if you got to to listen to or be here for last week's sermon. Uh, We won't be overly descriptive or sensational in any way, but we do want to, we need to speak candidly uh, about issues of human sexuality. Uh, We want to do that, we want to make that uh, regular and normal and not taboo for our church family and community to be able to talk about these things. Uh, And for any of you who are parents and parents of young kids, we would encourage you to use this as an opportunity for um, further conversation with your kids. Uh, Whether you choose to use this series or or something else as a jumping off point to those conversations, we just want to encourage you as elders of the church, uh, make conversations about sex and identity and sexuality regular, normal, proactive uh, in your family, in the the culture of your home, um, and not just kind of say, here's one talk that I'm going to give my kids one time and then hope they figure out the the rest. Um, So hopefully this is even an aid to you. Uh, those of you who have kids, um, in, in doing that with your family. Today we're talking about God's design and purpose for sex and sexuality, um, how we are meant to steward our bodies with integrity or with sexual fidelity, which is a phrase I'll explain more in just a little bit, uh, and how we're to do that in the midst of a, a broken and hypersexualized world. Whenever we talk about sexuality, and I thought Jess spoke to this really, early, really well a little while ago, Um, it's likely to stir up some sorrow and some shame in us. Uh, It's likely to really drive us either to a self-righteous pride for how well we've been doing, if you've been doing well in this area of your life, to be self-righteous, self-reliant, and prideful, or to be driven to a crushing kind of despair for the failure and the failings that you are experiencing in your life. In In either case, we're really prone to, when it comes to this topic, to measure our lives by the standard of our performance in the last couple days or couple weeks. And that's a miserable standard to measure your life by. It's, a, it's an awful standard to measure your life by. So right from the start this morning, remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are more sinful, more corrupted, more broken than you can possibly imagine, and at the very same time, more loved, and more pursued, and more welcomed into true freedom than you ever dared dream. And because you and I can only ever experience God's salvation by Jesus' perfection, by his performance, by his work, and not your own, we're free to actually pursue and to experience a life of sexual fidelity in light of that and united with him. So by his word and spirit, uh, may God root out our pride this morning and root out our self-reliance may he also lift our heads and lift our eyes and renew us in the grace and the hope of his gospel today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into our text today. Our Father in heaven, compel us all simply to take you at your word. We know experientially the pain, the shame, the brokenness 
of sexual sin. We know the opportunity of sexual fidelity. We've experienced that, some of us, by your grace. We pray that you would help us to take you at your word, that you would, in these moments together, guide us by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and ears and hearts to embrace your promises, to embrace the powerful joy of your word. And we pray this, Father, for our sake, and we truly this morning pray this also for the sake of those we love, either here with us today, our friends and family members, our neighbors, our coworkers. We pray this for our sake and for the sake of those we love. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, I'll start in verse 9 and then read through verse 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word. Three things uh, that we will consider in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. Sexual fidelity, or what the body is for. Sexual immorality, or what the body is not for. And then third, an embodied gospel, or the power of sexual fidelity. So first, uh, sexual fidelity, what the body is for. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, we did a whole series on this book a couple years back. You can find that on our website. But 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is responding to a variety of questions and problems playing out at the church in Corinth. Uh, and some of those problems and questions are, are about sex and sexual expression. Behind those questions, behind those problems, lies a, a rampant misunderstanding about the value and purposes of the human body. The pervasive view in the Mediterranean world at the time, and this was certainly the case in Corinth as well, was that the physical body didn't really matter all that much. Uh, even in some schools of thought, it was considered a prison to be escaped. Uh, kind of the pinnacle of life, the goal of life was to escape the prison of the body, to live a, a fully spiritual life without the hindrance of the physical body. Paul here quotes what was apparently a, a Corinthian slogan 
Uh, it's in quotations in your scripture. It says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, uh, the physical body, as we all know, has appetites, has cravings. And since the physical body isn't all that important according to this view, we should just give it what it wants. Indulge the cravings that you have for food, uh, for sex, for whatever. Appease those cravings, those desires of your body so that you can get onto and pursue the spiritual aspects of life, which is the more important part anyway. But in response to that, Paul here is saying, no, 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 no. The body is good. The body is good. Verse 13, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Our bodies matter. What we do with our bodies matters. In fact, we can never separate the spiritual from the physical. Uh, We can't compartmentalize our body from our soul. We have to consider those two things all the time together. Notice here from this text, maybe you heard this, maybe you picked up on it as we were reading it, the value of the body is drawn from all three persons of the Trinity. So first, in the Father's good and perfect design, human beings image God as body and soul together. We're meant to, as Paul alludes to here in verse 20, to reflect the very glory of God in our bodies. We're to glorify God, not just in our spirit, but with or in our body. Verse 20. So God the Father imparts value, but so does God the Son. Jesus Christ takes on human flesh, and he lives an embodied, fully human life. And thereby, really only thereby, is able to accomplish our salvation. And then flesh it out from there, what is the substance of our salvation? It's union with him. So salvation, we sometimes tend to reduce salvation down to a legal transaction. We get the righteousness of Christ, he takes our sin on himself. That's part of salvation. But it's not this impersonal, transactional type thing. We actually are united with him. As Paul writes in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Not only is Christ in us, actually more frequently the New Testament speaks of how we are in Christ. That we've been united with him in his death, that we've been crucified with him, that we've been hidden in him, kept in him. And then verse 14, raised with him. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, God, Paul says, will raise us up by his power. So the body is not a prison to escape. Really, in the kingdom of God, for all eternity, we will live a perfected, renewed, embodied life. Jesus was raised from the dead, not as a spirit, not as a disembodied spirit, but with a physical body. And one day when he comes again, we will be too. Now this imparts immense value to our bodies. They are meant for union with Jesus and bought by him at the infinite price of his own blood, united with him, truly, as verse 19 puts it, we are not our own. Of course, we, we steward our body. We have responsibility for our body, but our body isn't just our body. It's Jesus' body. And then likewise, in verse 19, it's not just the Father and the Son, but our bodies, Paul says, are a temple of the Holy Spirit within us. Think about that. Our physical bodies steward the very presence of God. Our physical bodies steward the very presence of God. So what is the body for? It's for the glory of the Father. It's for union with the Son. It's to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Your body is supremely 
valuable. What you do with it matters, not only for your sake, it matters infinitely beyond you. Stewardship is a a helpful lens, a helpful way to think about this. To steward something is to use well what's been entrusted to you. And at least in kind of Christian verbiage, Christian vernacular, we tend to associate stewardship more with money or with time. We want to use our time well, we want to use our money well. Apply that same kind of thought to your body, to the body that you've been entrusted with. Another helpful lens or way to think about this is consecration. The body is an instrument of worship. Paul writes about that especially in Romans chapter 12, the first couple verses. Uh, Meant to be set apart, meant to be used in complete devotion to God. One of the nine rhythms of grace that we talk about here at Liberty Church often, uh, we just call it for short bodily consecration. And on our website, if you ever want to look, there's a whole page dedicated to the rhythms of grace. There's some resources and sermons about bodily consecration and unpacking further what, what that means. But bodily stewardship and bodily consecration Uh, They're about much more than sex. It's not just about sex, but a really important part of these things is how we pursue or abstain from sexual activity and sexual expression. Because our bodies are, for God's glory, union with Christ and indwelling by the Spirit, how we navigate sexuality and sexual activity matters. So I have really come to appreciate, I really like this phrase, sexual fidelity. Sexual fidelity. When it comes to sexuality and sexual expression, we are prone to start with ourself, are we not? We're prone to start with ourself and the desires and the cravings and appetites we find in ourselves and then to work our way out from there. And so those of us then who care what the Bible teaches about these things, who, who are seeking to follow in the way of Christ, we start with ourself and then we run immediately to Scripture to see, well, what's permissible? What's, to use the Corinthian slogan, what's lawful? Can I do that? Okay, it looks like I can do that and that, but I can't do that or that. And that's how we tend to navigate this topic. Sexual fidelity says, what if there's an infinitely better starting point? What if there's an infinitely better starting point? What if there's a designer and a design that we pursue fidelity, faithfulness to? And we don't start with ourselves as the reference point. See, the hunger and the desires that you experience are there for a reason. They are meant to, and they do, reveal our deeper longings. They're meant to to drive us to Jesus. So don't ignore them or suppress them. Just don't allow them to become your fixed reference point. Instead, start with the actual starting point, that there's a good and loving and gracious God, and he is for the body, and the body is for him. All that to say, Christians are not those who seek to deny or suppress sexuality. I don't know what you may have heard. I don't know what you may have experienced. But faithfulness in Christianity is not to deny or suppress sexuality. We are those who pursue sexual fidelity. Regardless of our station in life, married or unmarried, and regardless of who we find ourselves attracted to, we don't look for our identity. We don't look for our worth in sex. We find our identity in Jesus. We anchor our identity in Jesus, and then we pursue fidelity to him out of that. So that's sexual fidelity. Second, let's also talk about sexual immorality, or what the body is not for. Verse 13, Paul writes, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And this is a term, sexual immorality, 
uh, that Paul uses not only in 1 Corinthians, but throughout his letters, his writings in the New Testament. Really, it's a broad category, uh, which refers to anything outside of God's design and God's purposes for sexual activity. Uh, When we step back and survey the entirety of Scripture, we find, first and foremost, sex is good. It's good. It's a good gift from God. And in contrast to so much of our experience and our perceptions, it's not dirty or gross. It's not oppressive or manipulative or abusive. It is rather meant to be the deepest kind of physical intimacy that two people can experience. And as Paul here is explaining the reasons to not indulge any desire or craving you find in your body, he says something really profound in verse 16. He says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And he's quoting here Genesis chapter 2, which we looked at a little bit last week. We saw there, God created man and woman, this pair of like opposites in his own image, and joined them together in a relationship of complete and perfect intimacy. Emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, and physical intimacy. And so sex becomes, it's meant to be, the physical expression, the physical experience of this covenantal union between one husband and one wife. Sex is, in quite a literal way, two individuals becoming one flesh. John Stott once wrote, It's possible for us as human beings to have all kinds of sexual relations. We can use our bodies in all kinds of sexual expression as human beings. But, he says, only in a marriage of a husband and wife does a reunion occur. He writes this, it is the union of two persons who originally were one, were then separated from each other, and now in the sexual encounter of marriage come together again. It's meant to be a reunion, and it only happens when it's a man and woman coming back together in marriage. Maybe you heard this as we read it, but notice how in 1 Corinthians 6, union is like central to this whole topic and conversation. These unions are tied together. Salvation is union with Christ. Sex is union with another human being. And so our union with Christ must shape our sexual union. And we step back, and God's design, uh, sex is for procreation. It's the way we fulfill our cultural mandate to multiply and fill the earth. It's also for enjoyment. Spouses are called to enjoy their husband or wife. But even more, sex is an act of worship. It's sacramental. It's meant to be a tangible experience of a covenantal union that points us to our union with Jesus. That's most fundamentally what sex is for. And so anything outside of this, what Paul here for short just calls sexual immorality, is what the body is not meant for. The body's not meant for. And I'll talk about a few specifics in just a moment, but before I do, let me establish a nuanced but really important difference between sin and brokenness. Sin and brokenness. This world is broken. And I don't think I have to convince any of you of that. When humanity believed the lie, when they rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, it corrupted everything, including sexual desire and sexual expression. And so all of us will, all of us have, experienced brokenness in our sexuality. 
It's not a matter of if your understanding and your practices of sex are corrupted by sin. It's a matter of how. It's a matter of what ways or which ways they're broken. So our brokenness is the result of humanity's original rebellion. Sin, as the way I'm talking about it this morning, on the other hand, is our own active rebellion against God. Does that make sense, the difference? Humanity's rebellion led to the breaking of the world, the fracture of the world. Sin is in the world in that sense, but I'm going to use the word brokenness to help us differentiate it. Sin, on the other hand, is our own active rebellion against God. And it's related to brokenness, but it's different. And here's why that's so important. Each one of us is inclined to various forms of sexual immorality. You might pray for years. Some of you have been praying for years for God to take away the appeal of whatever that is for you. And maybe God will take that away for you. And maybe he won't. Maybe he won't. Some of us have been crying out for God, to crying out to God for years to heal this brokenness, to, to rip out these desires that we look at Scripture and say, no, that's, that's not right. Those are corrupted desires. And yet, those things still have a real appeal to us in our lives. Even so, we are responsible for how we respond to our brokenness. Or I'll say it this way. Your brokenness sexually is inevitable, but sin is not. Brokenness is inevitable, but sin is not. In fact, because brokenness is inevitable, the call of the Christian life from beginning to end will include, as Paul says here, fleeing sexual immorality, putting sin that remains in you to death, choosing to pursue faithfulness to God instead of seeing yourself as the fixed point of reference. So as we just briefly step through a few things, I invite you to consider both of these things this morning. Where is sexual immorality appealing to you? Or to say it another way, where do you see and experience brokenness in your life sexually? And then at the very same time, how will you respond to that? How will you respond? So for one, pornography is sexual immorality. Uh, it is to demean, to dehumanize, to objectify fellow image bearers of God. An author and a lecturer named Christopher West, I've really come to appreciate his work on the theology of the body, he says, pornography is plagiarism. Pornography is plagiarism. He says it's, it's a hijacked copy of something good. And he has this great line when he's talking about God's design for sex. He says, Satan doesn't have his own clay. Satan doesn't have his own clay. In other words, Satan does not have the power to create something or create something good the way God does. All Satan has the power to do is to warp God's clay, to distort the good things that God made. He seeks to, we read this in John chapter 10, the words of Jesus, Satan seeks to steal and to kill and destroy. And we know in our own lives, he's incredibly effective at doing that in a variety of ways, including sexually. But Satan is wholly dependent on what God originally made good to do that. He can only take what's already there and designed to be good and warp it. So pornography is plagiarism. It's Satan's co-opted, cheap, counterfeit version of something that God made good. And then another one. In verse 9, Paul specifically here mentions men who practice homosexuality. And this really could merit its own series. Uh, we could, we should do a whole series on that someday. But for this morning, let me just try to succinctly summarize uh, a few things. One, homosexual activity 
is sexual immorality. Homosexual activity is sexual immorality. And that is, really, this is really important, rooted in creation, not culture. It's rooted in creation, not culture. There are arguments made that the references to homosexual activity in Scripture are prohibiting narrowly specific cultural practices, um, things like pedophilia or promiscuity or something like that. But that those references in Scripture would not be prohibiting what we see and experience in our culture today, a monogamous same-sex marriage. But this is why it's so important that we start with the actual starting point in these conversations, that we don't make not only our own selves and desires, but even our own culture the starting point. Some people are quick to point out, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, but actually he did. He did. Jesus, multiple times in his life and ministry, speaking into the, the malpractices of sex and sexuality and marriage in his day, he, said, he referred back to Genesis 2 and he said, from the beginning it was not so. And he reclaimed that original design, good design that God laid out at creation. That God made male and female in his own image and that the two became one flesh. So no, he doesn't specifically mention the word homosexuality, but he does speak to the design of God for sex and sexuality. But note as well, and this is how Paul words it as well as elsewhere in Scripture, it's the practice of homosexuality that's sinful. Not in and of itself an attraction to someone of the same sex. And this is why the difference between sin and brokenness is so important. Uh, an attraction, an orientation toward, some, toward people of the same sex is one of many forms of sexual brokenness that we might experience, that you might experience, that I might experience. And for many of those who do experience it, it's not something that changes. Like when you become a Christian and you say, I'm going to follow Jesus with my whole life, you don't immediately go from being attracted to people of the same sex to now being attracted to people of the opposite sex. So God forgive us for how we've responded to and failed those who are attracted to people of the same sex. Homosexual activity is one form of sexual immorality, not a worse form. And homosexual attraction should never be met by distance or disgust. It should only ever be met by welcome, by the embrace of those of us who know our own sexual brokenness, whatever direction or orientation that takes. You have, if this is true of you, you have a place among sexually broken people like me and like us in this church family and in the family of God. The question for us all is how will we respond to the brokenness we find in ourselves? How will we respond to that? Because the gospel is never just about trading one form of brokenness for another. And God forbid we ever reduce the gospel down to that and we say to someone who's attracted to someone of the same sex, well actually just be attracted to someone of the opposite sex and then be, be broken and sexually do whatever you want as long as it's in that direction. Sexual fidelity asks, what does faithfulness to Jesus look like given whatever form of brokenness I experience? And for someone who is only ever attracted to people of the same sex, the answer to that is unbelievably costly. Unbelievably costly. And it should elicit deep compassion and care and help. I know my own heterosexually oriented brokenness, but in my marriage, 
I see an outlet of sexual expression that God has called good and that Jesus has redeemed. I don't see in Scripture the same thing for those who are attracted to people of the same sex. And let that fill us with compassion. Let that fill us with compassion. And in the church especially, let's honor and support our friends who every single day, in desire to be faithful to Jesus, choose self-denial, choose restraint in a way that you might not ever have to or have had to. Now, something similar can be said for any unmarried persons, whether attracted to the opposite sex or the same sex. Because any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage is sexual immorality. Any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage is sexual immorality. Uh, Paul, in verse 9, mentions adultery, which refers to sexual activity with someone who is not your husband or wife. But for those who are unmarried, uh, for those who perhaps never marry, uh, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, would be to take something out of its good and God-ordained context. God created it, called it good, but gave it a specific context in which it was meant to be used. So that the answer to that question, what does faithfulness to Jesus look like for someone who is unmarried, is chastity. And that is an old school word. And maybe it has a connotation for some of you, you're like, please don't say that anymore. But I really would love to reclaim the robust meaning of this word. I think it would be incredibly healing and helpful in the moment in which we live. Um, I deeply uh, appreciate some of Lauren Winner's work on this. She's an author, uh, speaker. Really appreciate her writing about this. Let me just quote her at length about this in particular. She writes this. In the Christian grammar, we have no right to sex. The place where the church confers that privilege on you is the wedding. Weddings grant us license to have sex with one person. Chastity, in other words, is a fact of gospel life. Fact of gospel life. And then she goes on to say, Of course the desire for sex is normal and natural, but many spiritual disciplines, the so-called disciplines of abstinence, center on refraining from something normal. One who keeps vigil is abstaining from sleep in order to abide with God. One who fasts is abstaining from food in order to see that one is truly hungry for God. One who spends time alone foregoes the company of others in order to deepen a conversation with God. One who practices simplicity avoids luxury in order to attend more clearly to God. And the unmarried Christian who practices chastity refrains from sex in order to remember that God desires your person, your body, more than any man or woman ever will. One does not avoid or refrain, she says, from something for the sake of rejecting it, but for the sake of something else. In this case, one refrains from sex for the sake of union with Christ's body. That union is the fruit of chastity. See how it's, it's more than just refraining and more than just restraint. It's refraining and restraint for the sake of something else, something good. But lest we think this morning that the goal is simply to get all the unmarried people married as quickly as possible, or if you're attracted to people of the same sex, just to get you married to someone of the opposite sex and hope that works itself out. Sexual immorality can and does run rampant in marriage, too. By any of the things we've already talked about, pornography, adultery, but also abuse, rape, using sex manipulatively or as a bargaining chip, 
we can also sin by omission. We can sin by not actually pursuing loving sexual intimacy and expression of that within marriage. So here's the thing. Those of us that are married to someone of the opposite sex, when you see Jesus face to face someday, he's not going to say to you simply because this is true, congratulations on your heterosexual orientation. Congratulations on your heterosexual marriage. He's not going to hold up your marriage certificate and then like give you one of those cheesy photo op handshake things and do one of these. Right? Sexual fidelity is infinitely more than avoiding immorality. It's about actually pursuing the good. It's about actually running after and running after for your entire life God's good vision and design for sexuality. Not getting to a heterosexual marriage and saying, I've hit the finish line, now I'm good. No, use your body for the Lord because the Lord is for the body. We'll talk more about marriage and singleness next week. But for this morning, let me just say this as well. Many of us who might look okay from the outside, aren't okay when it comes to this. We look around the room on a Sunday morning and you see some smiles, some intact traditional family units, and you might be tempted to think, well, everybody else seems happy. It seems like they figured this out. If you're an unmarried person or you're attracted to people of the same sex, you look around you're tempted to think, well, if I could just get married, if I could just change who I'm attracted to, I'd find a God-glorifying outlet for sexual activity. Everything would be okay. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. I've had the privilege of being invited into the non-Sunday morning moments of your lives, many of you. The secret stuff, the darker stuff that you don't want to talk about with anybody else. Here's the truth. Everybody's not fine. And I'm 100% confident I don't even know the half of it. So if you're a married person, please don't assume that just by being married, you've now made it to the finish line. You can pat yourself on the back or you can quit pursuing this. And if this is true of you, please don't assume that you are the only one who experiences sexual brokenness, deep sexual brokenness or sinfulness in your marriage because you're not the only one. And part of our role as brothers and sisters in Christ is to walk with each other through the reality of life. So that's sexual fidelity, sexual immorality. Third and finally, let's consider the power of sexual fidelity. The power of sexual fidelity. Because our bodies are for God, because we are united with Christ, because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, sexual fidelity has a unique power to display the gospel. And so I'll say it to you this way. Sexual fidelity is the gospel embodied. It's the gospel embodied. Marriage between a husband and a wife is a picture of Jesus and his church. And Paul fleshes that out. He talks about that more in Ephesians chapter 5. But chastity, likewise, chastity is a testament to the worth of union with Jesus. It's actually a foretaste of eternity. It's imagining the future into the present where all of us, no longer married to another image bearer of God, and now free from all of our brokenness and free from all of our slavery to sin, will be united with Jesus forever in what the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Chastity is a foretaste of that. So we pursue sexual fidelity for God's glory. We pursue sexual fidelity for our own holiness and happiness, trusting that God's ways are better than anything we might come up with ourselves or just the cravings we experience. But we also pursue sexual fidelity for the genuine good of the world. We pursue it in love 
for the real people that we cross paths with every day, the, the, our friends and our family members and our neighbors and our coworkers. David White, uh, and not the one who's part of Liberty Church, uh, crazy enough, there's another David White who lives in Pennsylvania who's married to a woman named Jennifer. Crazy enough, this David White wrote a book called God, You, and Sex, which is a fantastic book. And he writes in that book, he says this, our reluctance to broadly proclaim God's design for sexuality is actually a hindrance to the proclamation of the gospel to a lost and dying world that's obsessed with sex but blind to its glory. It's a hindrance to the gospel because our world is obsessed with sex but blind to what it really is and what it's really for. And I don't think I have to convince any of you, nor will you have to convince anyone else of the power of sex. We know the weight and the shame and the pain that comes with so much of the desire and the sexual activity in our world. And Paul gets at that here in verse 18 when he says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Now in one sense, that's not true at all because we use our bodies to sin in all kinds of ways, not just sexually. What he's saying here is because sex is union and because our bodies are meant to be used in light of our union with Christ, Sexual activity has unique power to either solidify or to subvert our entire understanding, our entire experience of union. So quantitatively, sexual immorality is just one form of sin. You even heard Paul list them off in verses 9 and 10. It's just one type of sin. But qualitatively, it's different. It has unique power because it has to do with union. That also means, though, Here's the opportunity that sexual fidelity has unique power to display the gospel. In every generation, in every generation, the sexual fidelity of Jesus' followers is a striking, is a powerful form of faithful presence, which is what we're talking about in this entire sermon series. It's a striking form of faithful presence. Our day has its own rampant forms of sexual immorality, and it has its own demands that the church that Christians compromise and capitulate and accommodate to better fit in with the times. But so is every age. So is every culture. There has always been, in every culture and in every age, pressure applied to the church to abandon the good design of God and the historically orthodox teachings of what Scripture says about sex and sexuality. Sexual fidelity is among the most powerful embodiments of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I'll say to you this morning is this. Let us never rob the world of this embodiment of the gospel. Let us never rob the world of this powerful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our opportunity to be both prophetic and empathetic. It's our opportunity to be both cultural prophets and community priests in this time and place. And thanks be to God, you do not need to be perfect to do that. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus. And ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So me and my sexual fidelity are not the hope of the world. Thanks be to God. It's not even the hope of my own life. It's not even my own life and salvation, the source of that. Only Jesus can be that. Only Jesus is that. But by the grace of God, united with Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as you pursue sexual fidelity, you become servants of others for Jesus' sake. 
you become a powerful embodiment. Your life becomes a powerful embodiment of the gospel. And in your expression or in your restraint, you display the surpassing worth of being united with Jesus. So wherever you find yourself in all of this this morning, welcome. And I really mean that. Welcome. Such were some of us. Such are some of us. So let us, wherever we are, look to Jesus and united with him, let us become people of sexual fidelity who truly believe that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we ask for your grace even now in these moments because we know the power that sin has to corrupt and destroy, but we also see, Jesus, the power of your gospel to redeem and restore. We see the opportunity of sexual fidelity, not only for our own life and for your glory, but also to be faithfully present people in this time and place, to proclaim the worth of union with you. I pray that you would help us to see that and to believe that. I pray that we would come to this table, needy as we are, to feast again on your grace, to feast again on your finished work. That in you, and because we've been bought with a price of your body and blood, we can actually pursue a life like this, united with you. We can actually pursue a life of sexual fidelity. We pray, God, that you would help us to not only joyfully receive this good news for ourselves, but gratefully share it with others. And in all of this, give glory to you by whose grace alone we are what we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.